Hi, I'm Susan Swain, host of C-SPAN's Q&A, where we spend an hour with nonfiction writers and historians who add context to today's news. This week on the Q&A podcast, David Wessel, on his new book, Only the Rich Can Play. He tells the story of how Silicon Valley entrepreneur Sean Parker, a novice to politics, succeeded in moving a tax provision creating so-called opportunity zones from idea into law in just four short years. But do opportunity zones actually help economically depressed areas, as Parker intended? Or do they simply create new tax shelters for wealthy investors? David Wessel explains more while providing an inside look at how legislation is crafted in today's Washington. Our conversation will begin in just a moment. Well, Mr. President, during one of those conversations that we had, we talked about ways to improve distressed communities throughout this country. 52 million Americans living in distressed communities, and we talked about legislation that can move those communities forward. And you said yes. And as a part of this tax reform package, the Investing and Opportunity Act has been included, which will bring trillions of dollars into poor communities because of your willingness to listen. David Wessel, that is Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina. December 2017, the big tax legislation of the Trump administration talking about a legislative proposal he was a chief sponsor for called Opportunity Zones. He predicted it would bring trillions of dollars into underserved, uh, economically depressed communities. How did it turn out? Well, I don't think even Senator Scott would make that trillions remark now. That's a bit of uh, press conference hyperbole. Um, Opportunity Zones created 8,764 tax havens across the country, and they gave wealthy people an incentive to put their money in those poor communities in exchange for a capital gains tax break. Unfortunately, we don't really know how much money's gone into them. Uh, As a result of that arcane Senate process known as reconciliation, which is now a household word in Washington, the provision that required reporting was stripped out. But I would say, based on the stuff I've said, we're talking about tens of billions of dollars going into opportunity zones. But unfortunately, I think the bulk of the money has gone into zones that didn't really need the money, they were already improving, or went to projects that probably would have been built otherwise. Not all of them. Uh, Opportunity zones have been used for good, and I have lots of examples of that in the book, but I don't think because there's no requirement that they be used for good, that they benefit the residents of a community, I think most of the money went to other projects. Opportunity Zones are the subject of your book, Only the Rich Can Play, that's just been released. And I'm wondering, it's a 500-plus page tax bill. You write in the book that this uh, occupied about five of the pages in that big piece of legislation. How did you get interested in this one aspect? (laughs) That's a great question. You know, I had a colleague at Brookings, Adam Looney, who's a public finance economist and had worked in the Obama Treasury, and he called my attention to this. And I kind of rolled my eyes, you know, another complicated tax provision. And I know they're important, but when you think about storytelling, taxes don't usually, you know, don't coincide with the word storytelling. And then he mentioned that Sean Parker of Napster and Facebook fame was behind it. And suddenly my ears perked up. And so I thought... I was looking for a project. As you know, I've been at the Brookings Institution for more than seven years. I used to be a reporter for the Wall Street Journal. 
and I kind of missed having a project of my own. So I thought, hmm, a tax bill that has this little provision that's supposed to help left-behind communities, interesting social policy. Sean Parker is involved in it. There's got to be a story here. And then I heard that there was an Opportunity Zone Expo in Las Vegas at the Mandalay Bay and Resort. And I thought, I'm not sure I'm going to do a book on this, but if I do a book and I don't go to this expo in Las Vegas, I'll always regret it. So this is in the spring of 2019. I went to the Mandalay Bay <clears throat> and went to this Opportunity Zone Expo, one of dozens of these conferences that were held as people were beginning to figure out this provision of the tax bill. And it was a modern-day gold rush. It was just teeming with people. Some of them were tax lawyers and accountants trying to get business. Some of them were rich people trying to find ways to reduce their taxes. Some of them were developers looking for money. And it just was such an interesting collection of people and fortunately for a reporter, all of whom were extroverts and all of them were just happy to talk to me as I wrote things down in my, in my notebook. And so I came back from that and I thought, okay, there's definitely a story here. I didn't know that that would be the most fun of the whole reporting thing because part of my game was this would be a good excuse to travel the country. I got as far as Portland, Oregon, the COVID pandemic hit, and I did the rest of it remotely. The title chosen for your book, Only the Rich Can Play, does it refer to the people who can partake of the tax uh, code provision or uh, the legislative process that enabled it? Well, only the rich, that's a good, I think it's probably both. Uh, Look, uh, the way this provision works is only people who have a capital gain, a profit on some asset that they bought, stock, property, art, whatever, only people who have a capital gain can put money into an opportunity fund. So most Americans can't play in this in this game. Now, of course, rich people are the people with the money, so it's not clear to me that if they had had a broader uh, set of people who could participate, they would have gotten more money, but it certainly would have seemed more fair and democratic. But also, um, I conclude that Sean Parker was well-intentioned. Like a lot of people in Silicon Valley, he thinks that he has a better way to do everything. He calls it hacking. You can, better way to do the internet, better way to do anti-poverty, those people have a great deal of self-confidence, you might say. And because he was shrewd and rich, he could fund his own little think tank, the Economic Innovation Group, that very skillfully lobbied this into law, recruited Tim Scott as the Republican senator from South Carolina and Cory Booker, the Democratic senator from New Jersey, to be the point people on this thing. And the way they did it and the way that Tim Scott got it into the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, there were never ever hearings, any hearings. It had a lot of sponsors, but it was mostly because the idea sounded, you know, benign. Who could be against rich people putting money into poor neighborhoods? And they didn't design a program, in my view, that was likely to maximize their in- what they said were their intentions. Instead, all those people I met at the Opportunity Zone Expo in Las Vegas are very skilled at finding ways to squeeze and, and stretch the tax code so that in the end, I'm afraid it did more to save money for rich people on their taxes than to help poor people who live in Opportunity Zone communities. So I, you, know, you said that there was not really good reporting or accounting on this, uh, not mandated by the legislation, but is it possible of the work that you've done to estimate how much money would likely have gone to the U.S. Treasury through required capital gains taxes right. that have been diverted and to the Opportunity Zones? So the, um, the Opportunity Zone program was very carefully designed 
EIG, the think tank, hired a technician who'd worked on Capitol Hill. And it requires that people who participate pay some money in 2026. And that's really significant because, as you know, in Washington, everything is measured in 10-year increments. So that because there's this revenue in 2026, and most of the losses occur outside the 10-year window, the official estimate is relatively small in the single-digit billions of dollars. I don't really have any way of knowing how much it will cost us in the long run, because that depends on how many people participate and how much money they make on their investments. Um, uh, so well, we don't really know. But I do know that if we're talking billions of dollars, and although that seems like a small sum in Washington these days, where now somehow you can't get attention unless you're talking at least a trillion, you can imagine that billions of dollars could have been used to directly help these communities rather than try and funnel it through the tax code. Well, let's go back to Sean Parker. We have some video of him talking about Opportunity Zones in an interview. Let's watch, and I'd like to learn more about him. Sure. From my perspective, this was, this was a purely philanthropic mission. And when, when I set up my foundation, I, I spent a lot of time thinking about how can I help communities uh, that don't have access to some of the advantages that I had. When you go to Silicon Valley, you find that there's a ton of investors. In fact, there's more investors than there are uh, great companies to invest in. And this is a problem that it turns out is pretty unique to Silicon Valley. This is, so this all began from a desire to uh, try to try to spread that access to capital more evenly uh, across the country in places that really just didn't enjoy. They weren't they didn't benefit from the technology boom or the economic recovery. So for people that don't know him, who is he and how did he make his money? So Sean Parker, who actually grew up around here in Washington, um, was a young hacker. Uh, he actually got busted when he was a teenager for hacking into some government system. Uh, he didn't go to college. He ended up in Silicon Valley. He was the founder of something called Napster, which the younger viewers may not know, but it was a music sharing site that was put out of business because they were stealing people's music and people were trading music when, when I was younger. Um, and then he befriended Mark Zuckerberg at the very, very early days of Facebook. And he made his initial money by being the first president of Facebook. He didn't last very long there, but when you get in at the ground floor in Silicon Valley, even after you leave the company, you can ride the escalator up. And that's how he's made his money. And I think he's probably made a lot of shrewd investments since. One thing that's interesting about that clip, and it really captures something about Sean Parker's intention, you could see that he was talking about investing money in businesses. That was kind of like his vision, and he told me that. And there is some money going into operating businesses. There's actually a little brewery not far from here in, in D.C. that has got some opportunity zone money. But he didn't appreciate that most of this money is going to real estate. That wasn't his plan. And I think that's reflects the, that's what happens when you have a good idea and you're so convinced that you know how it's going to work that you can disregard the advice of experts. How does he feel about them today? That clip was 2019. Um, he feels good about them. He thinks that uh, like it's like software. You, we got version 1.0 and there's some problems with it. We should do version 2.0 and 3.0. The problem is, as we've learned in Washington recently, uh, the business of tweaking legislation has become impossible. Once it passes, no one wants to touch it. Um, so he and his allies prefer to look at the good stories, the places where it's being used as they intended, and they 
uh, think the bad stories are just uh, bad examples, and they think it's early days, and they still think that lots of money will flow to poor communities, so they want us to reserve judgment. Um, after Trump lost, some of the people at his think tank began to say that maybe the Trump Treasury didn't do uh, put regulations in that would have helped this thing. They didn't say that publicly when Trump was president. Um, so I think he's still pretty proud of it, but I don't think that he has spent a lot of time on the ground looking at how it's actually going. It's like he launched his baby and he's onto other things. He's really into fighting cancer and stuff. You talked to him. I did. Yeah. Did you uh, share your book with him? I did not share the book with him. I shared with his publicist the biographical information I have in the book about Sean Parker to make sure I got it right. And it was interesting. Um, Sean Parker's people complained that I dwelled too much on his party days as a young man. Uh, And they are now trying to style him as a serious philanthropist stuff. I'm not completely convinced, but they did give me some evidence. I mean, he threw this ridiculous party at Davos a few years ago. Um, He he bought uh, a mansion in... In, in California that has next to the Hugh Hefner's uh, Playboy Mansion. Uh, I think he lives well. Um, but um, I think that what happened, the reaction to the book, I haven't heard from him. I don't expect to. I did hear from some of the people at the Economic Innovation Group, who I did let read the manuscript when it was in galleys. Um, and they're angry because they think that I misled them. I never really expressed an opinion about Opportunity Zones when I was doing my interviews. I did what any good journalist does. I kind of asked a lot of questions, and I probably appeared sympathetic. So they expected a much more positive review of Opportunity Zones than I give in the book. Well, the book is a real detailed study of how Washington works and how they navigated the system. So I want to dig into it a little. So when did uh, Sean Parker first have the idea for these? Around 2013. And when did it move into, I'm going to work on this? Um, well, I think over a period of the next couple of years, he and his sidekick, a guy named Michael Polanski, who um, had, has had some brief notoriety because he's dating Lady Gaga, uh, which we know from Lady Gaga's Instagram, not my deep investigative reporting, <laughs> um, um, got, got hired these two Washington insiders, Steve Glickman, a Democrat, veteran of the Obama White House, and John Letiri, uh, who had worked for a trade association for the foreign units of, I mean, the U.S. units of foreign multinationals, a Republican, both of whom had worked in the Senate. And he hired them, and they pretty much went into stealth mode for a couple of years as they organized their little think tank. And then they built a very strong case that we have a problem with economic inequality in the U.S. Uh, you know, a lot of people talk about income inequality, the gap between rich and poor. And they focused on the gap between communities that are doing well and communities that are doing poorly. Um, That laid the foundation, but they didn't talk about opportunity zones. They laid, even though Sean Parker and Michael Polanski formed this think tank in order to get opportunity zones into law, they um, they cleverly built a uh, built the case by saying there's a problem, and then they descended with the solution. And um, because they're wise to Washington ways, they got two economists, uh, a Republican, Kevin Hassett, who was, after that, chair of um, Donald Trump's Council of Economic Advisors, and Jared Bernstein, who 
had worked for Biden as vice president and is now on Biden's Council of Economic Advisors to do a white paper. And the white paper says, we have a problem with geographic inequality and previous tax provisions haven't worked as well as we liked. They didn't really lay out a roadmap for opportunity zones. They kind of said, we need to think about doing something like this. But EIG holds them up as the poster boys for we have this bipartisan thing. And then over time, they build a coalition in Congress, impressively, of important people in Congress, the majority of the people on the Ways and Means Committee, Democrat and Republican. And Sean Parker goes around and meets with these people individually. And one thing that makes Sean Parker different than a lot of other business people I've met is that he's charming and he's engaging. And so John Letary told me that Unlike the CEOs he had worked with in his previous job, who knew they had to go talk to members of Congress, but basically hated every minute of it, Sean Parker really enjoyed it. So they built this uh, coalition, this formidable bipartisan coalition to push this bill, which was announced in 2016. But I think that a lot of the people who signed on didn't really look at the details, and they didn't think through how it might work in practice. So, um, you know, like a lot of bills introduced in Washington, it went nowhere. Um, but having Tim Scott on their side proved to be really smart. You know, the EIG, I think the EI, leaders of EIG, like many people in Washington, assumed that Hillary Clinton would win the 2016 election. But they had the perfect diversified portfolio. They had Cory Booker, if there was a Democrat in the White House, and Tim Scott, if there was a Republican. What they couldn't have known, but they lucked out, was that Tim Scott was on the Finance Committee and the then chairman, Orrin Hatch, uh, asked four senators to lead the, the tax reform legislation and make it, shaping it. Tim Scott was one of them. And so when you're in that inner, inner, inner circle, you can get something done, and Tim Scott got it in with a really interesting assist from Donald Trump at one key moment. Before we get to that, uh, one person that's in an early stage of the story is someone named Ro Kahana. Right. Who is he? So Ro Kahana is a congressman from Silicon Valley. Um, he was very popular with Silicon Valley uh, liberals because he was sort of socially liberal and uh, but economically appreciated economic growth. And he was, Sean Parker talked to him and tried to hire him to become the head of EIG, but Ro Khanna said, I'm actually going to run for Congress, so you should talk to this guy, Steve Glickman. Ro Khanna runs for Congress. Sean Parker contributes to his campaign. He um, loses. Two years later, he wins. He's now a, a Democratic congressman from Silicon Valley. A rather unusual guy, because on one hand, he's like big Silicon Valley economic growth. On the other hand, he was uh, one of the leaders of the Bernie Sanders presidential campaign. And I talked to him. He blames the Treasury for the way this was implemented. He doesn't take any blame for the fact that the law allowed it to be implemented this way or didn't require Treasury to do things like oversee where the money went. Um, and he's kind of dropped out of the Opportunity Zone picture. Was Rokana in Congress when it passed? No. no. Yes, yes. A yeah. But he, he voted against it because... He voted against it. Well, because all the Democrats voted against the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. All right. So Cory Booker, who was for this thing, voted against the act. And um, that's one of the things that I think hurt Opportunity Zones. So EIG had built a bipartisan coalition. As I said, you know, you got Cory Booker and Tim Scott, two prominent African-American senators, both of whom have been in local government, saying this is a good thing. 
It becomes part of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. It is immediately branded a Trump tax cut, and Trump, you know, embraces it. This was, I think somewhat cynically, Trump's answer to any time anybody asked him, what have you done for African Americans? Um, you know, he, he appointed African Americans to run the little office in the White House. They hired a, a NFL player turned motivational speaker like named Scott Turner, who went around the country speaking about Opportunity Zones as if, and he said, it's not, this is not a program, this is a mission. Ben Carson, the African-American HUD secretary, became an active proponent. A guy named Jerome Smith, who worked in the White House, who had worked for um, Tim Scott, he, he also was it. So Trump did two things. One is he embraced this thing and made a lot of people be against it because it was a Trump thing, because they were against Trump. And secondly, I think rather cynically, he made it seem like this is my answer to anybody who asks me, have I done anything for the black community? We have a clip of Cory Booker talking about Opportunity Zones. Let's listen to that. I worked with Republicans and Democrats to write and then pass a law that is bringing billions of dollars of investment to low-income urban and rural communities that have for too long been left out and left behind. There are so many places like that across America, not just cities like this one, farm communities and factory towns that, like us here in Newark, have been given up on and talked down to, counted out and underestimated. So early on, their their interest in this was on both sides of the aisle was really essential to its moving forward. Talk about these two freshman senators and why this concept really appealed to them. That's a good question. So one thing is, you know, Cory Booker is right that he and Tim Scott did this together, bipartisan effort, and had bipartisan sponsors. But it was not put into law in anything that looks like bipartisanship. There wasn't a single Democrat who voted for the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. Um, <clears throat> I think what happened here is, um, so Tim Scott is a really interesting guy uh, who, as a black man running from South Carolina, has been very outspoken on matters of race, is, uh, but knows he needs white votes. So he actually was co-chair of Strom Thurmond's last presidential, uh, last Senate campaign. But he's economically very conservative. He voted to repeal the Affordable Care Act. He voted for tax cuts. So, and he's had this thing he calls the opportunity agenda for some time. So he was always interested in using the tax code to, to push his objectives. Cory Booker, as mayor of Newark, had uh, spent a lot of energy getting the state of New Jersey to put some tax incentives in place to get businesses to invest in Newark. But the difference between that is most of the land in Newark that they were selling to these uh, investors was owned by the city, so the city could put a lot of conditions on them, including conditions about employment. There is no requirement in the Opportunity Zone law that you hire anybody in the community. You don't even have to pretend you're doing anything for the community. There are self-storage facilities which have no employees that are being built with uh, Opportunity Zone money. Um, but I think the two of them have, they had originally joined together on an apprenticeship bill. Um, and I think they were both very aware that we in the press couldn't possibly overlook two black senators, one Republican, one Democrat, who would join hands for anything. So 
when they did a bill introduction, like on the ap- apprenticeship thing, you know, the Washington Post would write 500 words on it. A- other senators would introduce a bill, and even the C-SPAN audience would never hear about it. Um, and so I don't think that, I think that Cory Booker, I, he still believes in the concept. He's not criticized it. Um, he probably will be instrumental if Congress ever revises the thing to make it better. But Tim Scott's office was the one that really did all the nuts and bolts work because Democrats were excluded from the Tax Cuts and Job Act deliberations. Yeah, we should make sure that people know that clip was from 2019, two years after it passed. So right. he was still talking positively right. no, about No, I talked to him. He's not, he's not negative. You know, this is the thing that's hard. Um, if I believe that 85% of the money went for the attended purpose and 15% went to projects like one I write about in the book, the Ritz-Carlton Hotel and condo complex in downtown Portland, I don't think I would have much complaint. Um, On the other hand, if 85% of the money goes to things like the Ritz-Carlton or projects in Brooklyn or Austin, Texas, and only 15% goes to, you know, like a bombed-out neighborhood in Baltimore, um, that's a different story. We don't know. I'd be the first to admit we don't know. My reporting suggests that more of the money went to the desirable projects in the best-off communities because those are the incentives for real estate investors. Some economists at the Joint Tax Committee got a peek at most of the tax returns filed in 2019 by Opportunity Zone funds, and they found that 84% of the zones got no money whatsoever. uh, Half the money went to the best-off 1% of zones, and that the average income of people who participate, only the rich can play, was over a million dollars a year. Is there a consensus view among economists about the efficacy of targeted tax breaks? Oh, that's a great question. So if you'd asked me that question about five or six years ago, I would have said that most economists, um, soft-hearted, maybe hard-headed yes, would say don't invest in places, invest in people. That trying to save Flint, Michigan, or some shrinking town in the middle of Kansas is just not going to work. And you're much better off investing in people, giving them training, education, and if they don't have opportunities where they live, encourage them to move to some place where they can be have more productive lives. Um, that's changed in recent years, I think, for three reasons. One reason is that we've learned that a lot of people will not move, even if they live in a dying community, because they have social networks, family, maybe their spouse has a job. And so people are a lot more stuck than I think economists realized. Secondly, Americans are moving less than they used to. Fewer people move from one county to another than was true 20 years ago. And third, frankly, I think a lot of economists were like shocked to discover that Donald Trump won. And when they asked themselves, why did Donald Trump win, they saw a lot of people who were really left behind and angry. And they realized that in those communities where shockingly low percentages of adults actually have jobs, and we have the whole opioid crisis and stuff like that, that um, just saying these people should move wasn't going to work. So I think economists are more open to place-based policies, but they're very skeptical that they work unless they're very carefully regulated and the incentives are right to make sure that the incentives benefit the people who live there and not just somebody who happens to 
some rich person who invests in a condo complex. While we're talking about the legislative process, uh, two House members that were the bipartisan co-sponsors of this, Ron Kind and Pat Tiberi. Right. Who are they and why would they, why'd they sign on? Right. So Pat Tiberi was um, a senior Republican from Ohio, and Sean Parker came and talked to him, and he was just, like, captivated. And his district had been changed, and he had some rural poor districts, and so he was really interested in getting this into legislation because he thought it had potential. Um, And he was very frustrated that the um, House version of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act did not include this provision. Um, Although this is kind of a Paul Ryan kind of thing, the former speaker, and although Paul Ryan is enthusiastic about it now, he wasn't very supportive then. He was trying to clean up the tax code. He didn't want to put more bells and whistles in. T. Berry wanted to be chair of the House Ways and Means Committee, but he he didn't get it. He left Congress. He now runs an Ohio business roundtable. Ron Kind is from Wisconsin, and... uh, he was kind of part of the new Democrat crowd, the people who were trying to figure out how do you, as Sean Parker said, get Silicon Valley to put money into poor neighborhoods or capital-starved neighborhoods in Wisconsin. Um, he wasn't very involved in the legislation. Uh, he was particularly frustrated. He didn't like the decisions that the then governor, Scott Walker, made and just designating opportunity zones. He didn't think his district got their fair share. Um, and so he's become somewhat critical of them, but I think he still likes the idea. I should explain that the treas- under the law, the Treasury put out a list of communities that were census tracts that were eligible. Fifty-six percent of the census tracts in America were eligible, and the governor could choose up to 25 percent of those to be designated as an opportunity zone. Some to- chose wisely, some were probably corrupt, and some chose foolishly. So Austin asked for four opportunity zones. Austin is one of the fastest-growing metro areas in the, in the country. Probably doesn't need a lot of incentives. Asked for four, got 21. Mario, um, sorry, <laughs> Andrew Cuomo, uh, his office designated opportunity zones in Brooklyn, which is doing pretty well. 25% of all the opportunity zones in the state of New York are in Brooklyn. So some of the governors made foolish choices, and the money has, fo- has, has flowed to those choices because... Any reasonable real estate investor looking for a tax break on a high-return, low-risk investment is going to pick the better-off places. So back to process, because your book spends oh. a lot of time on it, and it's really it's such a, 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 a view of how Washington works. So the fact that they set up this think tank, and you said it spent a lot of time laying the groundwork for the, the base case. Right. It's a think tank. You work for a think tank. What's the difference between the Brookings, where you work, and their EIG? Right. So I think the Brookings Institution is 100 years old, um, and it's like a little university without students. It's got dozens of uh, experts on a variety of fields, and um, with a few exceptions, has never succeeded in getting its ideas passed into law. Once or twice, I think there's some... Some, some story about how the Brookings Institution designed the Marshall Plan. And there are elements of what the Brookings Institution scholars have done that show up in things like the child tax credit. EIG was founded by a rich, one rich guy, as was Brookings actually 100 years ago, um, with, who had a very clear agenda to get this provision into law. And um, I think it's matured since then. They've done a lot of other interesting things. They've been involved in issues about uh, occupational licensing, 
which tends to make it hard for people to break into provisions. They've done stuff on immigration. They've been very uh, active in lobbying for small businesses to get a better share of some of the COVID money. So it has grown into a broader think tank. But its origins really were one rich guy with a really determined agenda who managed to hire really smart people who navigated Washington with extraordinary skill. So, you know, uh, someone I know said that, um, and, and it's a contrast to people like Mark Zuckerberg, who has tried a couple of times to do legislation. He had, you know, he tried to save the Newark public schools. I think that's largely seen as a failure. He had this big immigration reform thing called FWDUS that it, they, they launched it too soon and they got lots of grief. And um, so I think what Sean Parker did cleverly is hired a couple of guys who knew what they were doing, let them run the thing, do it very low profile, build it one step at a time, and then succeed. And I think they would probably prefer it wasn't branded as a Sean Parker thing. I mean, Sean Parker carries his own baggage, you know, Justin Timberlake and the social network. He had an incredibly ostentatious wedding where everybody was dressed in costumes made from, uh, uh, from, uh, from the Tolkien novels and stuff. So, um, uh, so that's the difference. They came with some agenda and they succeeded. But think about the uh, the Gates family, for example, who more or less bypassed Washington and right. used their money to go direct to projects and communities. Why did Sean Parker believe that Washington was the solution if it weren't for the tax haven portion of this? Um, I think he thought, I think he's trying to leverage rich people to put their money into these poor communities and he saw the tax code as an impediment to that. That he would argue that these investments in these communities, if they're well chosen, are risky. And the only way rich people will do it is if, they, if the government pitches in and gives them a little bit of an incentive to do it. And that was, that, that was think that would be the concept. Um, he has done the other kind of philanthropy. He has given money to set up this cancer research. He's into the whole immuno immunology of cancer. So in that sense, some of his philanthropy is like uh, Bill Gates's and Melinda Gates's. The thing that's so remarkable about how Washington works is that he didn't actually spend that much money on this. You know, from looking at their uh, public disclosures, it's less than $15 million. He spent, you know, tens of thousands of dollars in campaign contributions. Once he started doing this, he went from contributing only to Democrats to public to contributing to both. But this was a relatively low budget operation. It was just really clever. So somebody said, when I was telling somebody I know that the EIG people were angry at me because they don't like the tone of the book, he said, they're crazy. They look like geniuses. In polarized Washington, they got something into law. Like, and it's like a case study in how Washington works. Um, what troubles me is I have no objection to people like Sean Parker having ideas for how to make America better. I mean, Lord knows there's a lot of smart people in Silicon Valley. I just don't think that we should let them and the people they hire write the law because we get what I fear we've gotten now. Back to the playbook, I, I made a list of, of what you have in various chapters about how they went about this process. In addition to creating the think tank, they hired bipartisan consultants and lobbyists spreading money around Washington. Why is that important to do? They're door openers, basically. Um, and they, they, they got a bipartisan group of economists who they kind of brought an advisory council that didn't really have much to do with it, but it gave them a good sheen. 
Ken Rogoff, who was at the IMF, a very famous economist, Matt Slaughter, who's the dean of the business school at Dartmouth. And when I talked to them, yeah, they went to a few meetings, but when you talk to EIG, you'd think these guys were the brain trust. Campaign contributions. Right. So, as I said, Sean Parker was a big contributor to Democrats. Um, When this thing got going, he switched and increased his campaign contributions and went both to uh, Democrats and Republicans. He flirted with Republicans during the uh, 2016 presidential campaign until uh, Donald Trump got nominated, at which point he he signed on with the Hillary Clinton camp. And look, I don't think I don't think that these campaign contributions buy votes in this case, but I think that they're a combination of getting you in to see someone. Here's a big, rich contributor. And they're kind of a thank you note with a big check attached. Now, these are two uh, inside baseball stories, sneak peeks for members of Congress right. and also a launch event. Right. So what John Letiri explained to me is that, in a sense, uh, in Silicon Valley, you get a couple of big-name investors to back your company. And then other people say, well, if those guys are in it, I want to be in it too. And so his strategy was to give sneak peeks to key members of Congress, like Pat T. Berry and Ron Kind and uh, uh, Scott, Tim Scott and Cory Booker, and get them to sign on to it, knowing that once they were on it, they would, be, um, they would get a lot of followers. So he tells me that um, the most powerful and charismatic members of Congress get an early look at these things because they're much more valuable as sponsors. But why, uh, this is pre-COVID, of course, but why is a, a launch event that very few people go to important in the yeah. legislative process? So the process? launch event was, um, it was kind of strange. Um, so they had Hassett and Bernstein, Republican and Democrat, giving this intellectual bipartisanship. And then they got Scott and Booker talking When you look at the, I watched the video, it's not clear that they really were very focused on Opportunity Zones but at that moment. But it gave it this perfect intellectual legitimacy among economics reporters. If Kevin Hassett and Jared Bernstein both think it's a good idea, we must do it. And bipartisanship. So even though uh, the event was only briefly about Opportunity Zones, on the EIG website there's this picture of Cory Booker and Tim Scott you know, bipartisan, bipartisan, bipartisan. And this is a, a really interesting, also a, a, one of the strategies was the Distressed Communities Index. You referred to that earlier. Uh, but this is a, a, something of interest both to legislators and also the media. Right. Local, local, local. Why is that important? So um, uh, because they had worked in the Senate, um, Leteri and Glickman understood that members of Congress are hungry for information that they can use about their communities and how do they link what they do to what's going on in their communities. So um, this Distressed Communities Index uh, allowed them to go to any member of Congress and say, look, this is, this is what's going on in your district compared to other districts around the country. These are the poor zip codes. And then they made it very accessible to the press. So there were all sorts of stories about you know, Nebraska, uh, uh, you know, this town in Nebraska is 20th on, on the Distressed Communities Index. It was a way to um, capture this concern about economic inequality in a very easy-to-understand way, kind of USA Today friendly because you could rank the communities, and, 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 and newspapers went for it, and the AP helped distribute it, and, they, and it, you could make beautiful graphics. They were really good on the data viz. So it was just such a 
I mean, there's, it's all accurate. There's nothing, they're not distorting the truth. They're just highlighting this economic inequality without ever mentioning the words opportunity zones until later. Are the distressed uh, communities, is that the 8764? Is that no. the same? This is, uh, the distressed communities is, a, is just a, an index they made looking at a lot of things. So what is the 8764? The 8,764 census tracts are census tracts that... We can show that while you're talking about it, by the way. Gov- that are designated by governors to be opportunity zones. So that's how many opportunity zones there are possibly were when the No, no, there are. Uh-huh. They, these are designated opportunity zones. So anybody who follows the rules can invest money in one of these things, and if the project proves profitable and they hold it for 10 years, they don't have to pay any capital gains taxes on it. But what we don't know, except for this study I mentioned from the Joint Tax Committee, is most of those places didn't get any money. So it is true that these zones are, on average, poorer than the typical um, census track. But there are a lot of places on there, because of the way they were using data, it was somewhat dated, um, that were already drawing lots of investment. So that's why I mentioned downtown Portland, Oregon is an opportunity zone. One other aspect of, of the success and passage after the election, when the Trump administration came in, you write about how their focus was tax reform, but not this kind of tax reform. But momentum was aided by two things, and I'd like to have you talk about them. One, the Republicans' failure to repeal the Affordable Care Act, and secondly, Charlottesville. Why? So the first one is, you know, I remember thinking at the time, tax reform takes a long time, and these, I don't believe they've done enough work to get a tax bill through Congress in 2017. And I was just wrong. There was, A, a lot more work behind the scenes than I had realized. But secondly, when they failed in the Senate to repeal the Affordable Care Act on that famous thumbs down by John McCain, the Republicans uh, were realizing, like, man, we got to have something to show for our time controlling Congress, just as the Democrats do today. So that provided the momentum for the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, of which this, this hitched a ride on that thing. Charlottesville, though, is a fascinating story. Um, so Charlottesville, of course, there were these demonstrations over a statue of Robert E. Lee. They turned violet. Some protesters died. Uh, it was a confrontation between white supremacists, white nationals, some of whom had Nazi flags, and protesters who wanted the statue taken down. And President Trump famously said that there were good people on both sides. And this was too much for Tim Scott. And he went on a cup, did a couple of interviews in which he basically said, we need moral leadership from the White House, and this is not moral leadership, that this is just wrong. There are not good people on both sides. I mean, it was a very strong statement, especially from a Republican senator. So um, his office gets a call from the White House a couple weeks later and said, would you like to come down to talk to the president about this? And Scott says, I thought maybe I should go, maybe I shouldn't go, but like most people, if the president calls, you go. He went. And he was braced for a real confrontation with Trump. But instead, he found, as other people have reported, that in these settings, Trump is kind of doesn't want confrontation. And he was very, uh, it was an amiable conversation. And Tim Scott talked about being black in South Carolina and why what Trump had said was so hurtful. And then Trump says to him, according to Tim Scott, uh, what can I do to make it up to the people who I have hurt here? Well, Tim Scott was ready for this, and he says, Mr. President, you can support my Opportunity Zone legislation. 
And until that point, the White House had no patience for this. They were trying to cut corporate taxes. They weren't interested in this. There were a few people in the White House who were, but the White House itself was not. That changed instantly. Uh, Jerome Smith, who was a, a, a proponent of Opportunity Zones working in the, in the White House office, uh, the Domestic Policy Council, gets a call from a uh, 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 guy who was the White House ledge person at the time and says, that Opportunity Zone thing, you need to tell me about it because the president's for it. The next day on Air Force One, uh, President Trump is asked by reporters about this meeting with Tim Scott. It's closed to the press, but everybody thinks it might have been dramatic, black senator confronting Trump on these remarks. And Trump said, we had a great conversation. And by the way, that thing he's talking about to put money in poor communities, I'm all for it. So at that point, uh, the Trump White House got behind it. Um, and, you know, there have been a lot of stories about how Ivanka Trump and Jared Trump, uh, in their real estate interests, took advantage of this. And some of the stories suggest that somehow this was a nefarious scheme by them to get the line their own pockets. I actually don't think that's true. I think a tax break passed that was very favorable to real estate. And not surprisingly, people around Donald Trump, who are real estate investors, including Jared Kushner, took advantage of it. We have President Trump talking about it in his uh, February 4th, 2020 State of the Union. Right. Let's listen. Opportunity zones are helping Americans like Army veteran Tony Rankins from Cincinnati, Ohio. After struggling with drug addiction, Tony lost his job, his house and his family. He was homeless. But then Tony found a construction company that invests in opportunity zones. He is now a top tradesman, drug-free, reunited with his family, and he is here tonight. Tony, keep up the great work, Tony. It's a great story, but it's not true. I mean, uh, Rankin did get hired by a construction company, but it was not connected to Opportunity Zones. Um, he, uh, although the, that company has, has done really good work and has later gotten involved in Opportunity Zones. So he kind of more than blurred the lines a little bit. The um, most heartwarming part of that, the end of that story, is that, as you could see, when he smiled, his teeth need some fixing. So because he was on national TV, a number of dentists offered to fix his teeth for free. So it's a nice story, but it exaggerates the role that Opportunity Zones played in his in his recovery in the ways that Donald Trump tended to do. The last portion of your book, you uh, went at, in, at first to Portland and then by internet to communities that were designated and had received Opportunity Zone money. What did you find out on the ground? So um, I, did, I did go to Baltimore, too, because <laughs> you can do that without getting on a plane. So what I found is that from what I can tell, anecdotally, but that's what reporting is when you don't have good hard numbers, most of the money went to places that didn't really need it. Downtown, the state of Oregon designated some really bad, economically bad rural communities and some of downtown Portland as opportunity zones. The downtown qualified because not very many people live there, but the people who do, do live there are in housing that's been preserved as affordable housing, so it shows up as poor. And what I found is, in a place like Oregon, as much as I could tell, most of the money went to places like downtown Portland, office buildings, the hotel and condo complex, and very little to the immigrant community of Rockwood outside. Um, Baltimore is just a fascinating place. Um, it 
it's it was exactly what opportunity zones were meant for. I mean, it's a struggling town. Uh, it's lost. It was uh, uh, the sixth largest city in America in 1950. It had 950,000. Now it's down to about 600,000. They have terrible crime problem. They're just uh, it, its reputation was probably ruined by the wire. But when you walk around Baltimore or drive around Baltimore, it looks like the wire, just block after block of more than that things. And they got a little opportunity zone money. I mean, I was just there yesterday, and there's a really interesting project. A guy is building is taking some row houses and renovating them. His name is Brendan Schreiber. He's going to put businesses on the first floor and apartments for the business owners upstairs, like live above the store. Um, But his whole project is $5 million, whereas the um, condo complex, the Ritz-Carlton condo complex, that's one condo of many. So what I fear is that because there was nothing to force people to put money into places like this thing on North Avenue in Baltimore, most of the money went to things in Austin or Brooklyn or downtown Portland that didn't actually need it. And then there's some bad provisions in the law. As I mentioned earlier, self-storage facilities, which are nice, but they don't create any jobs. And then the most outrageous one is that a number of communities qualified as low income because they were college towns. And the governors, for some reason, designated those as opportunity zones. And so in Louisville, Kentucky, and uh, Urbana-Champaign, Illinois, which are university towns, um, people are building luxury student housing, the kind that for people who can afford to have their kids live in a nice apartment with what they call bed-bath parity, which means you don't have to share a bathroom, um, with Opportunity Zone money. And I just don't think that was what it was intended for. So if the concept was generally seen as a good one, was the problem with the way that the law was crafted or the way it was implemented by Treasury Department? Well, both. So first of all, there's an interesting issue about whether the concept is right. And here's the choice. Rich people have a lot of money. We would like to encourage them to put them in poor neighborhoods. Can we write a provision of the tax code that really makes that happen? Or should we just tax them and then the, let the government put the money in? So there's an there's a ideological choice there. I think this law was poorly drafted and poorly conceived because it didn't, because they had decided that previous tax breaks like this had too much red tape and too much bureaucracy, they went too far in the other direction. So there is nothing to require that an investor even assert that this project is helping the community. There's nothing that talks about employment. The old enterprise zones that Jack Kemp, the former Republican congressman and HUD secretary, proposed in the 80s, they had, uh, they had some incentives to hire. So I think it was poorly drafted. And I think it reflects a kind of combination of naivete about how much tax lawyers will exploit something and faith in the market that let's let a lot of money flow and some of it will go to places that don't need it, but most of it will and we can be happy without a lot of bureaucrats. I don't think that the Trump Treasury did the law any favors, though. They, at every opportunity, um, when you read about what the accounting firms are saying, they say the regs are very taxpayer-friendly, which means that they made it easier for investors. Um, And so there probably were things that a different Treasury would have done to steer this in the right direction. And now we have an interesting, we'll see what happens. Uh, Joe Biden campaigned on reforming Opportunity Zones, 
There's nothing that I've seen in any of the bills that he's sent up, nothing in any of these bills pending in Congress that would touch opportunity zones. And the Biden Treasury has done nothing significant on regulations. I think they look at it as like, this is such a mess. Congress created this mess. Let them fix it. And it's kind of got lost. But you know how Washington works. I wouldn't be the least bit surprised that one day we wake up and and there's some provision added in conference in a reconciliation bill and suddenly there's a change maybe to narrow opportunity zones or proposals to do that, maybe to make them more generous, their proposals to do that as well. So what are the lessons of the opportunity zone legislation that apply to the big bills that are pending in Washington right now? So um, the first thing is that uh, the, in, when the big bills are so big, little provisions that if they stood on their own would get a lot of scrutiny just get tucked in and nobody can really pay attention. They get overwhelmed. So there's a real need for reporters and, and congressional staff and advocacy groups and think tanks to scrutinize these bills to see what the little things are, because the little things can turn into big things when they get... Secondly, um, man, reconciliation is a frustrating process, and this program would have benefited from better reporting and better data if not for reconciliation. And the third thing is that um, you should never let, you should never outsource the writing of legislation. Now, of course, there were people in Congress who were involved in this, but most of the work was done by a a think tank funded by one perhaps idealistic billionaire, and that's not a good idea. So if people read your book and say, boy, this this process doesn't work uh, for the country, for the people that it intended to in a majority way, what can I as an individual citizen do about it? What would your answer be? Um, well, everybody should vote. That's the first thing. Um, I think that I found a number of communities where people organized and the economic development efforts were strong in order to uh, encourage opportunity zone investment. And so I don't know how many of us can do this, but like there's this example in a small town in Indiana where one rich family sold a business and is using the money to renovate uh, a hotel in the downtown to make it into senior housing. So I think one thing is that if there are rich people in a community who are kind of publicly minded, there's a bunch in Erie, Pennsylvania as well, a big insurance family owned a big insurance company, that opportunity zones can be used for good. You just got to work really hard to make sure that they're being done. And I also think that in many communities, D.C. is one of them, uh, where the state and local government has put some added incentives in to opportunity zones, they have, in order to get take advantage of those incentives, you need to walk through some hoops to show that this is good for the community. So I think that, you know, too many of us look at development in our communities as like that's somebody else's business, and the only people who show up at a zoning board are the people who live next door who don't want the building or do want the building or whatever. And I think that in things like this, this is a, a tool that can be used for good, but it requires a lot of energy in people in a community to make sure it's used for good and not just as a tax break to build a hotel. You reported on Washington for the Wall Street Journal for 30 years <clears throat> and then seven years helping people understand it at the Brookings Institution. Did you learn anything new about Washington in this, in this particular project? Hmm. Um, I think I had never actually seen a tax provision 
that was born outside of Washington uh, come to life like this? You know, it wasn't like, uh, obviously, you know, big corporations, they're always lobbying. They spend hundreds of millions of dollars lobbying to get, like, this provision of the tax bill so that, you know, plants that make pharmaceuticals can get a tax break. I was familiar with that. I just, I, I didn't realize how, um, in a way, it was easy what they did when you look at it after the fact, but just how clever you can be to get something into law without getting a lot of attention, without spending a lot of money, without, and, and just, it was, it's just a remarkable case study of what wealth can buy you. And what I worry about is that there are other tax provisions that rich people will push that will be cloaked in things like opportunity zones, but will really end up just making the rich richer. And I think we have to be guarded about that. The book is called Only the Rich Can Play, How Washington Works in the New Gilded Age. David Wessel, nice to have you in person in the studio to well, talk about It's so good to it. be here. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Q&A. And subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. And while you're there, please take a minute to rate and review us. You can also send us an email about Q&A at podcasts at c-span.org. Send me your questions, your comments, or ideas. Your feedback is welcome. 